I'll be reading from 1 Peter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You know, all of us at one time or another have experienced pain and suffering. And when we do, it can, it can confuse and cloud us at a lot of levels. I mean, when you're in really acute pain, um, it, it affects our relationships with people. Uh, we begin to feel isolated. Nobody knows how we feel. We tend to pull away from people when we're hurting. Um, it affects us economically. We miss work. We have to go to the doctor. We have medical responsibilities, trying to take care of the pain and suffering. We have... But, but it also affects us spiritually, significantly spiritually. We begin to question, does God really love me? Am, am I a Christian? Why, why is he treating me this way? And these questions begin to plague our minds when pain and suffering become acute. Well, you know, when Peter wrote this letter, it was probably 30 years after the death and resurrection of Christ. The church has kind of spread now into Asia Minor, northern Asia Minor, which would be modern-day Turkey, those northern provinces we spoke about last week, Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia. And, and, and the church is coming under a degree of pressure uh, from its surrounding area. There's an increasing anti, uh, kind of an increasing anti-Christian sentiment among the people. It was affecting them at a lot of levels, actually. It, it was affecting them in, uh, with the government, of course. And we'll see Peter deal with this in chapter 2, verse 13. It was affecting them in the workplace. There were some Christians in the workplace. You know, these Christians weren't participating in emperor worship. They weren't participating in some of the temple rituals, temple prostitution. And so they began to see these Christians as a bit alien. And, and they were like exiles. They were different than us. And so they began to face that persecution and with the government, with the workplace. Even some marriages were really struggling. And Peter will deal with that in chapter 3 because a woman or a man might come to faith and the, the spouse doesn't. And then you have that tug of war within the marital bond. Or neighbors beginning to slander them because of who they were and what they espoused in Jesus Christ. So they were coming under some serious pressure. And so Peter is writing this letter to try to answer the question, how can we thrive in the context of suffering? How can we find joy in the midst of trial? How can we continue to love and serve others when we ourselves are being pressed and suffering and struggling? It's really the question he has. And the answer that we're going to find, as Kimmy has just read, is it begins with worship. 
I mean, worship is the remedy to deliver us from the discouragement that comes from suffering. Worshiping God for all that he is and all that he's done for us. This sermon really is in two parts. I don't know if you noticed there was kind of a a switch in verse 6, but in 3, 4, and 5, Peter is just extolling and exalting God for this great salvation. He's going to get to the suffering part. In fact, the bulk of the letter deals with that. But, but first he begins where we all should begin, which is just praise be to the God and Father of Jesus Christ. That's where it begins. So he's going to talk about worship, and we'll just look through those. I mean, it is like a treasure chest that we're going to open up. Verses 3 and verses 4 and verses 5. This is, you know, I want you to recognize that in the first 11, in the first 12 verses, there are no imperatives. There are no commands. He's not telling us what to do. He's just telling us who we are. He's telling us what we have. He's describing and explaining things to us. And so there's going to be just a treasure trove of joy. But then you'll notice in verse 6 that it moves to, in this you rejoice, though now you, if necessary, have to suffer various trials. Then he'll move into the suffering. But as we're called to rejoice in our salvation, in verses 3 to 5, The second part was, we're going to rejoice in our suffering. As crazy as that sounds, I mean, as contradictory and paradoxical, we rejoice in our sufferings, and he's going to instruct us, kind of giving a little mini theology in verses 6 to 9. So look with me back at the beginning, back in 3 to 5. Let's just look at what he says about rejoicing in our salvation. Notice he begins, just as I did, praise the Lord. Praise God, the Father of our of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, that he begins with praise. The church in exile is a worshiping church. The church under pressure is a worshiping church. We exalt God, we thank God, we praise God for all that he is and all that he's done. That's the first order of our business. And he moves immediately into telling us why we do this. Look at what he says, according to his great mercy. His great mercy. He moves right into, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the, uh, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He is giving us the reason. It's not according to works. It, it is according to his mercy. Just you saw in verse 2, it was according to the foreknowledge of God. Not our knowledge of God. He knew us first. So it wasn't according to the fore, It was according to the foreknowledge of God, and it's according to the mercy of God that he has given us new life. He's, he's given birth to us. We've been born again. Now, this language of being born again is unique to the New Testament. We see it earlier in John chapter 3 when Jesus says to Nicodemus, the religious leader, he says this, he says that you must be born again to enter the kingdom of heaven. This idea of God giving birth to us. You noticed in verse 3 that he's referenced as our father, that he's given life to us. See, God is not portrayed here as some cosmic power deity that's distant, but he's a father giving us life. This is what theologians call regeneration. God brings life. He resurrects our soul, if you will. He gives us life. He brings us into this living hope that now we can live for him. We have hope. We have hope today, and we have hope forever because he's given us new life. Now, hope was a precious commodity in this culture. In this culture, hope was, was in short supply because of the difficulty of life. I mean, the, the general philosophy of this day 
was, this, was kind of echoed by Paul in 1 Corinthians when he says, uh, let us eat and drink and be merry for tomorrow we die. There was no, there was no consistency. There was no, uh, there was no um, solid nature of life. It was topsy turvy. Sophocles was a uh, a Greek poet, and he said these words. He said, "Not to be born at all. That is by far the best fortune. The second best is as soon as one is born, with all speed to return hither whence one has come." It was better not to live, was the view, because life was so challenging and difficult. And yet what what Peter is saying to us is you've been born again. You've been given new life into a living hope. You never need to fear death. You do not need to fear it. Why? Well, it's through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. He's been raised. Now remember, in his resurrection, Jesus put death to death. In his resurrection, he has secured for you life forever. In his resurrection, it's been confirmed to us that God has accepted his sacrifice, so you've been forgiven, you've been reconciled, you've been adopted, and you've been redeemed. These are all gifts. Peter's just explaining to you who, in fact, you are. Now, Peter is a perfect one to tell us this, because, you know, Peter, in the beginning of our Lord's ministry, he had a lot of hope. I would argue it's a misplaced hope, but he had a lot of hope that Jesus was going to be this geopolitical messiah. We see, of course, in the torture and in the crucifixion of Christ and in his death on a cross, Peter lost all hope. He had no hope. There was no hope for Peter. He was downcast. The apostles, they went back to fishing. They just went back. It was a lost hope. But then what restored the hope? Well, you see, Peter, when he seized Christ, the resurrection, his hope was restored. So he's the perfect one to explain to us. We've been born again to a living hope. That's just one benefit of this great salvation that we are to praise him for. You've been born again to a living hope. You don't need to fear death. You don't need to fear anything in this life if death has already been secured for you. But then secondly, look in verse 4. He says that we can praise God because we've been born again into an imperishable, an undefiled, an unfading inheritance kept for you. Now, you know, back in the Old Testament, when when God speaks about inheritance to the people, it's always surrounded on the land. The land is a big part of the promise that God gave to the people of Israel. And land was a very good thing, right? It provided security, it provided a means of wealth, it provided a home. But this inheritance is of a whole other order. This inheritance is imperishable. In other words, it'll never die, it'll never collapse, it'll never break under its own weight. It is undefiled, it will never be stained, it will never be sullied by the sin of ourselves or the world. It'll be unfading, it'll never lose its luster. It'll never fail to satisfy you. This inheritance that he's saying to us that we have is is a part in the kingdom of God. It's part of the new heavens and the new earth, that you and I have a place there. Just as if giving you a deed of land would give you a fixed, firm place in a country, so now God is giving you a fixed and firm place in his kingdom. That's what he's saying to you. That's why he's to be praised, because we've been born again into this imperishable, undefiled, unfading. Now, think about that with me for a minute. Because, you know... these words roll over our souls and they're absolutely weighted with joy for you. 
if you stop and think about it, think about everything in this life. The best things that we can get, the new couch that you have, that you went a little bit beyond the budget, but you love it, it's well built, and it's going to keep you for a long time. And what happens after the next six, eight months? You may look, walk in the room and you just love it. So glad I got that couch. And then a year passes by, and this, it begins to fade a little. Or maybe someone spills something on it. Or maybe the spring loses a little bit of its strength. Or a car. I remember the first car I bought. remember driving it out of the, the showroom. It was a beauty. Black Volkswagen Jetta. And it was in perfect shape. Then I got married, and it changed. <laughs> but that's another story for another day. But, but, but in time, the, 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 the bright blackness faded. It lost its luster. I think about everything, the piece of technology that gets supplanted by the next generation. I mean, think about what happens. Or look at your bodies. I mean, God has designed us to understand this principle. That you're 20, you can eat mac and cheese for all of college. That's all you need to eat, and you'll be fine. But then the 30s come, and things slow down a little bit. The 40s, the brakes are now beginning to be pressed. 50, you're in a bit of a free fall. And 60, you don't care anymore because you're just glad you're breathing. And you just want to keep going as long as you can. But God has wired the skin changes, the hair changes. But you have been born again to an imperishable inheritance. And he keeps it in heaven for us. It's safe. It's safe under his watchful care. And then notice the third thing in verse 5. We can praise God because we've been born into a salvation that is protected by God himself. Now, notice that. It says, by God's power, it's being protected. It's being guarded. It's a military term. It's a fortress term that people are safe in the fortress. That, that this salvation. Now, now, this would be good news to the people receiving this letter because they're under great pressure and they're wondering, will I make it? Will I survive? Will my faith endure? Because that's, I think, what he's protecting them from. That's what he's protecting us from. He's not protecting us from suffering. We're going to see here, no, suffering is by by necessity that we endure suffering. In fact, we're going to see how it builds us up. And he's not protecting us from death. I mean, Jesus has already conquered death. We don't need to be protected from death anymore. Death has already been defeated. He's protecting us from our faith failing. He's protecting us from when you and I go through trials and we begin to think, I don't think I'm going to make it. And he's going to say, oh, you'll make it. I'm protecting you. I'm upholding your faith. I'm strengthening your faith. Your faith has my hands underneath of it upholding it. We see this again in Peter's life. You know, Peter in Luke 22, uh, Jesus says to Peter, you're going to deny me. Now, Peter vehemently, of course, disagrees. And here's what Jesus says to him in Luke 22. He says, Simon, Simon, Satan has demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. That's a picture. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. Jesus prays for our faith to be upheld. He prays to the Father, Hebrews 7. He's interceding for our faith to not fail. Notice what he says. He says, He says this, and when you have turned again, because Peter did fall, but he didn't fail. And we fall, but we don't fail. Our faith will not fail. We may falter, but our faith will not fail. He says, I have 
when you turn again, strengthen your brothers. And that's what he's doing for us right now. Do you see that? He sees that God has upheld his faith, and now he is strengthening his brothers by teaching us he will protect your faith because he protected mine. This is what you've been born again into. This is why we praise God. So before we even look at the tragedies of life that await us, this is what we have that we build our house on. This great salvation. You've been born again into a living hope. You've been born again into receiving an imperishable, undefiled, unfading inheritance. And you've been born again into a salvation that God himself will sustain. We know Paul wrote to Timothy in his second letter and said, if we are faithless, he is faithful because he cannot disown himself. That needs to encourage you. Because when you look ahead and you plan out the scenarios, what ifs, this happens, what if this happens, and will I remain, and will I be strong, and will my faith hold me up? He's promised to do that. Now, we are called to exercise faith, absolutely. And we can exercise faith knowing that he comes behind and strengthens us. So the operative question is, do you enjoy the salvation? Do you meditate? Do you consider it? When you get up in the morning, when you drive through the day, when you work, when you go to bed, do you consider this glorious inheritance we have? Are you born again? Has this been birthed into you? Have you been born again? Has God's new life been evidenced to you and in you through these things? See, a lot of times I think we look at being born again, because that's the language, new birth language. We look at being born again as kind of, we do pray a prayer, or we ask Jesus in our heart, or we make a decision, or we feel close to God. And, and if someone were to say, have you been born again? Yeah, yeah, back when I was 14. Now, I, don't, I think those experiences can be very legitimate. But it doesn't answer the question, have I been born again? Have I been born again is answered by the evidences in your life, such as do you marvel over his mercy? His great mercy has done all of this. Do you marvel over that? Do you ever scratch your head and just wonder, why do I know what I know? Why am I where I am? Why do I love him, even though I haven't seen him? Do you ever marvel over that? I mean, with that great song from Wesley, how can it be? He says, and can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood? Died he for me, who caused his pain for me, who him to death pursued amazing love? How can it be? I mean, do you ever marvel over it? The one that's been birthed again marvels over that. Because we say, I'm just a, I don't know. Why do I know these things? Because he's opened my eyes to him. We found he he sanctified me by his spirit in verse 2. So do you marvel at his mercy? Do you see change in your life? If you're born again, God has taken out a heart of stone and he's put in a heart of flesh. Do you see change in your life? I'm not saying perfection. But I mean change. If he's regenerated you, then then life should be different. Let me give you some examples. Our selfishness begins to give way to service. Our our greed and holding on to things gives way to generosity. Our bitterness and frustration and anger gives way to forgiveness. Our pride begins to move towards humility. Our lust moves towards purity. Not, Not all in one step. And it's faltering steps, no doubt. Sometimes we falter. But, but you begin to see over the years this migration towards Christ-likeness. Why? Because he's put, he's put life in our heart that is directed towards him. Do you, do you look forward to heaven? Do you find yourself year after year growing with a desire for that day 
when all things will be made new, when justice will be made clear, where peace will reign, where sickness will be vanquished. Do you, do you find yourself ever looking for that day? Or, or do you find yourself overcoming those fears of death? When the thought of death and the thought of sickness comes into you, do you find it quicker at hand, that ability to say, but death has been put to death in his death. I don't need to fear it anymore. Do you find that in your soul? These are marks of being born again. You know, John Wesley was once confronted by a group of hecklers, and they were heckling him saying, you know, what makes the difference really between you Methodists and the rest of the world? He just looked at him, and he says, our people die happy. They die happy. Yours don't. Ours die happy. Why? Because we know the one to whom we're going to see. That's a difference. Do you see these differences? Because many of us in a Christian culture, in a nation such as ours, uh, we can be religious. You know, we can be thinking about the things we need to do. We may think much about God, and we come to church, and we try to be moral, and we try to be upstanding citizens. But, But the religious person is identified usually by trusting more in what they are doing for God as a means of relating to him rather than trusting in what God has done to relate to us through his son. So the, the, the emphasis or the weight tends to be on me and my efforts towards relating to God. And the religious, while they're lovely citizens, that is not equivalent to being born again. And I would ask you, if you are religious, you must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. When Jesus spoke to Nicodemus, Nicodemus was a priest. He was a very religious man. He was a very moral man. He needed to be born again. So if you've been raised in that cultural context of Christianity, I would ask yourself, do you marvel over his mercy? Are you, do you see the change towards Christ's likeness? Do you long for heaven? Do you feel comfortable that Christ has defeated death? Those are the marks of being born again. Now, if you're here and, and religion is kind of on the sideline for you, it's, you know, it's not that big a deal, I would just ask you, in what do you put your hope? You know, the Christian's born into a living hope. It's productive. It's effective. What hope are you born into? And, and what hope do you have? And, and just remember that the value of hope is always measured by the, by the worth of the object. So it's whatever you're putting your hope into, However valuable that is, that's how good your hope is. So I would encourage you to consider Christ. By faith, we're born into a living hope. Okay, but notice, so, so Peter now, he's, he's kind of explained to us why we can rejoice in this great salvation. Look with me in verse 6, because he's now going to call us to rejoice in our suffering. And this is where it gets a little stickier for us. We're going to rejoice in our suffering. Notice in verse 6, he says, in this you rejoice. In what? Is he calling us to rejoice? Well, verses 3 to 5. I mean, in the salvation that he's just told us about, we're to rejoice, though now for a little while we suffer. See, that future hope of glory that I've just spoken about, that's to animate your soul so that when you're in trial, it's going to give you hope in the midst of trial. That, 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 That future glory that we have is going to propel us and enable us to be joy-filled in the midst of suffering. If you don't have a firm handle on what he has done for you, then suffering and times of trial are going to lead, they're going to leave us just tossed to and fro. But, but when our 
The anchor of our hope is driven into the ground of this salvation. Then we'll be firmer. And we'll be able to rejoice in the midst of our suffering and trials. So this is a very, very important word for us. Both for those of you who are in trial now. And for the rest of us who will find it soon. And we don't need to look for it, as Charles Spurgeon said. We don't need to look for it. It'll find you. But this is important information that Peter has given to us. He's helping us process life now. So he says, in this you rejoice, though now for a while you experience various kinds of trials that are grievous. I appreciate him in this, that he's not sugarcoating it. The Stoic has no place here. They are grievous. I mean, they are sorrowful. They are painful. They are occasions for weeping. The trials that many of you are going through, have gone through, will go through, require it's legitimate to shed tears over them. Uh, they, are, they are legit. And they come in, in very many forms, as he says. And let me give you a few examples. Uh, for this audience and for us currently today, there is that direct, that direct suffering and trial that, that affects physical, the body, persecution, uh, even martyrdom in many cases, which is the context now for many Christians. You know, according to a number of different reports, there are more martyrs in the, in the 20th century than in the 19 before. I want you to hear what I'm saying. A lot of people have died for their faith in Christ in the last 100 years. A lot of people have died for their faith. So th- that's very relevant application of this. But also there's other forms of direct persecution, economic, for example, where, where you don't get business, you lose jobs, you find pressure in the marketplace because of your faith. There's a lot of pressure on that. Again, i.e., go to Iraq. ISIS comes through town, Christian community, you lose everything. You just lose everything. If you don't lose your life, you lose everything else. So, so that happens. And, it, and it, it, it happens a little bit here. There is some economic pressure, perhaps. But the bulk of persecution, the bulk of suffering, the bulk of trials, I think is simply on a social level. And I don't mean to minimize this, but on a social level. The ostracizing, the marginalizing, the, the feeling that everybody thinks you're an idiot. That for the Christian in a liberal office environment, a liberal, I'm saying theologically liberal, is thought to be the village idiot. I mean, he's just an idiot. Social media or if you look at academia, or if you look at the social elites of our culture, uh, to believe in this gospel that provides a living hope because Jesus has been raised from the dead, born of a virgin, you are the village idiot. And and, and there are repercussions to that. Slander, making fun of mockery. That's why Paul wrote to Timothy, a young pastor, he says, don't be ashamed of the gospel. They may want to shame you, but don't be ashamed of it. And so that kind of suffering. But there's even the suffering that we're just in exile. I mean, we're not with God. And so we're going to have cancer. We're going to have disease. Our bodies are going to break down. We're going to struggle with depression and psychological issues. These are are all very legitimate, difficult things. But what Peter's saying is you can rejoice because it's just for a little while. Now, I know some of you probably are thinking, but it's been a long time for me. And, And I I. Believe me, for many it has been a long time. For many of you it may last longer. I think what Peter's saying here is it's a little while as you look at the whole of God's existence for you. As you look at 
as you look at eternity. That's kind of the way Paul views it when he writes in Corinthians. He says, don't lose heart. He says, though outwardly we are wasting away, inwardly we are being renewed day by day. For our light momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. We have to see them in context of all of life, not just this temporal existence where we're bearing flesh as we are. So the first thing he's saying is that suffering, yet rejoicing because the suffering is temporary. Second thing about suffering that he reminds us that does not deny our rejoicing is that it's going to both reveal and refine our faith. Look with me at 6, because this is really an important verse to grasp. He says, in this you rejoice, sorry, 7, um, well, let me start in 6. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved by various trials. If necessary, God has designed these sufferings for us. Why? So that, he says in 7, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise, glory, and honor at the revelation of Christ. God has an intention for every trial that comes into our life. That It's not random. It's not happenstance. It's not haphazard. He has designed these with the purpose for both revealing and refining faith. Now, comparing gold to faith, there's a contrast, I think you see, that gold, though valuable, can actually perish if there's enough heat. But faith will not. The sufferings can come on so great, but it will not perish. Faith that is being supported and protected and guarded by God. That though faith, the gold, that we just love gold, It can't stand the heat. Faith upheld by God can. But there's also a point of comparison that as gold is revealed, you know, when you put gold in heat, you see the level and the amount of impurities to discern how pure is that gold. And so what God is doing with the design of these trials is revealing to us and others the nature of our faith. Is it genuine? And what level of purity is it attaining? He's doing this not to crush us, but to reveal to us and also to refine it. But but revealing, let me remind you, you know, there's an old expression that you don't know what kind of tea is in the bag until it gets in hot water. We really don't know the degree of faith and the strength of our faith until it's pressed. And he's doing this to let us know. He already knows. And that we would turn to him. It reveals our sins. It reveals the false idols that we're hoping in, that we're trusting in. And he's revealing these to us as as fallacious and, and weak. Turn to him is what he's calling for us to do. And he's refining it. Let me give you a couple quotes. One from Charles Spurgeon, uh, who just says things, I think, in just amazing ways. I don't care what topic we're on. He has something to say about it that's worth listening He says, no flowers wear so lovely a blue as those which grow at the foot of a frozen glacier. No stars gleam so brightly as those which glisten in the polar sky. No water tastes so sweet as that which springs amid the desert sand. And no faith is so precious as that which lives in triumphs and adversity. Tested faith brings experience. You couldn't have believed your own weakness if you had not been compelled to pass through the rivers. And you would never have known God's strength if you had not been supported amid the floods of water. Faith increases in solidity, assurance, intensity, the more it is exercised with tribulation. Faith is precious, and its trial is precious too. 
So, so, so when we encounter these times and series of tribulations, we're asking God, reveal to us our own weak faith that you might come and support it and strengthen it. He does not bring these in to crush, but he brings these in to strengthen and encourage us. Malcolm Muggeridge was a British journalist of the 20th century. He was uh, a, a strong liberal in um, political views, and he became a Christian later in life. Uh, and if you've read anything that he's written, he has an incredibly sharp mind. He died in 1990. But, but here's what he said about the sufferings in his life. He said, I can say with complete truthfulness that everything I've ever learned in my 75 years in the world, everything that has truly enhanced and enlightened my existence has been through affliction, not through happiness, whether pursued or attained. In other words, if it, were, if it ever were to be possible to eliminate affliction from our earthly existence by means of some drug or some medical mumbo-jumbo, as, as Huxley envisioned in The Brave New World, the result would not be to make life delectable, but to make it too banal and trivial to be endurable. This, of course, is what the cross signifies. And it is the cross more than anything else that has called me to Christ. So, so, so we have to look. Peter's framing up for us how we look at sufferings. So in suffering, we can rejoice because it's temporal. Secondly, in suffering, we can rejoice because he is both revealing and refining our faith. And then in suffering, we can rejoice because it leads to the outcome of our faith. Look at verse 8 and 9 with me. 8 9, listen to these words. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. You... That always kind of stands me up straight. You don't see him, but you love him. Though you don't see him now. In other words, now in the present suffering they were going through, you don't see him, you believe in him. And you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. Do you see he's saying that in the midst of suffering, that we are to look at that suffering as leading us to the outcome of immense joy, such that the joy backwashes into now. That we are a people, those suffering, have growing affections in the midst of the trial. Do you see that Christianity, one evidence of Christianity is we love him. We love him and we have this incredible joy over all that he is and all that he's done. I mean, do you have that joy? The one that has God that has taken out a heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh, we will love him, though we haven't seen him. Isn't that amazing? Seeing is believing, right? Well, not so with this. We love him, though we have not seen him. And even now when we're in trouble, we believe in him. Why? There's no empirical data. We can't go to wherever he is and find him and hold him up and say, here, this is why we believe in him. We believe in him because the Spirit of God is giving us faith to believe in him. And that leads to us joy, knowing that our faith in the midst of trial is going to bring the outcome of our salvation. And it's true. We've seen it played out in people's life. You know, Richard Wormbrand was a Romanian pastor in the 20th century. And he was a Romanian pastor uh, when, of course, communism dominated Romania and Ceausescu in the 60s and the 70s. And he was, a, he was an outspoken evangelical pastor and shared how communism and Christianity cannot coexist. And so they put him in jail and many other Romanian pastors. And, and here's what he wrote. Um, uh, he was asked in an interview 
later on, after, of course, the wall fell, he was asked about did he have really the joy in the midst of trials and adversity. In fact, the question was simply this. Did you really have the joy of the Lord like Paul and Silas in Acts 16? Remember, Paul and Silas were in prison. They were singing songs. And we look at that text and we think, wow, God, if I could have that kind of faith. And this crowd is asking Wormbrand, did you actually have that? Here's what he said. He says, now I hope my answer doesn't offend anybody, but I must tell you this. When I was in prison, they put all of us Christians in the same cell block. We were all bound with chains, but our chains were to us as musical instruments. Sometimes in the middle of the night, we would all wake and be so full of the joy of the Lord that we would dance around our prison cells and we would clang our chains together for a musical accompaniment. Now, the reason I give you that is not because I think we'll ever face that kind of persecution. And I'm not trying to give you an example so far out that you can't relate to it. I'm showing to you, or what I intend to show to you, is that if this is the case in his life, how much more can we have joy in the suffering that we have? So he becomes like a a polar example to us, that that's the power of salvation rooted in the soul that can endure sufferings and give praise to God. Though we don't see him, we love him. Though we don't now see him, we believe in him with a joy that's inexpressible. So this is what Peter's showing us. He's saying, rejoice in your salvation. And then he's saying, because of this, in this, you can now rejoice in your suffering. Rejoice in your suffering. We have an incredible... The verses here are just pregnant with help for us. So what do we do with this? How do we move forward in this? As I said, there's been no imperatives. I haven't told you to do anything. But I'd like to tell you a few things to do now. Just in the way of application, let me try to give you some takeaways on this that I'd like you to think about. First, I would say, how do we, how do we grow in this? How do, we, how do we participate in this kind of theology? How, how do I get feet on this thing in your life right now? Number one, I would say we have to be consistently contemplating our salvation. What I mean by that is, folks, Every day, and let me, be, let me sound like a legalist for a minute. Every day I want you thinking about what he's done for you. Every day we want to consider verses 3, 4, and 5. Every day put our nose in this great mercy, great mercy. Marvel over the mercy. Think about this living hope to which you've been given new birth. Think about the promise of this inheritance. Think about the fact that death has been overcome. Think about Christ reigning at the right hand right now, supporting you in faith. Think about those things. Contemplate them. You know, dwelling on salvation will break the back of discouragement and suffering just as when the sun rises, it crushes the darkness. You know, C.S. Lewis said these words, and many of you have heard these before. He said, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. When you look at salvation, you can understand to a deeper measure, the purpose of suffering. So by salvation, we see and understand these things. So contemplate it. Think about it. If you're living with somebody, remind the other person about the great salvation we have. Secondly, be patient to understand God's purposes in suffering. Just be patient. In other words, don't expect answers to come right away. Many times when suffering comes in our life, we go in one of two errant directions. One is we go super charismatic and say, well, Christians shouldn't suffer. 
God loves me, I'm not going to suffer. Well, that's craziness. Jesus himself said, in this world you'll have troubles. Christians suffer. And it's not always because you've sinned. It could be the sin of other people. It could be the brokenness of this world. It can be darkness. A lot of reasons why we suffer. But to just say, nope, I'm going to claim healing. Well, that's fine. Uh, the reality is the scriptures may differ with you on a number of points. So we don't want to go in that error. Also, we don't want to go the stoic route. Well, I'm just going to toughen up. I'm going to firm up. I'm just going to endure it. I'm just going to hold on tight. No, no, no. We're called to take the middle path of, God, I want to humble myself to understand. It's a goal that I'm trying to put to you. You, It's hard to understand, especially if you're new in the faith. It's a difficult thing to grasp. The understanding the purposes of God. It takes time. It takes one another, actually. It takes older saints informing to us. You know, the older saints who can say, you know, um, I can be content in all situations. I've learned to be content. We need the older saints. We need people that have gone through seasons of grief and have come out faithful. They need to help instruct us. We need their aid. We need their wisdom. But But ultimately, we need to be patient as God begins to kind of reveal to us the work that he's doing. A great example came from J.I. Packer. He's a modern theologian, but just a great mind. He wrote Knowing God. Many of you have probably read that book. And uh, he talks about trying to understand the mysterious ways of God. And uh, he's, he's British. And so he references the York train station, which York isn't a huge town. It's between Edinburgh and London. Uh, but it's, it's the middle of those two cities. It has a train station, city small, train station's big because it's at a crossroads. And he says, if you were to stand on the platform of the York train station, you would see all these trains and cars moving about, and it would really look kind of disordered and random. You would see many, many trains and all this shifting going on, and it doesn't make a lot of sense from the platform. He said, if you were to go into the signal box where you would see the main diagram going five miles south and north of the train station and all the trains were lit with these little glows, you would be able to see the, the conductor moving the trains going to certain places. That's why he stops one train and he moves another train. He hooks up trains to the... And you would see it all and you'd begin to understand, oh, okay, I get the various movements. But you need to be in the signal box to understand all of that. Well, we're not in that signal box yet, but we know who is. And so we, we trust that in time he'll reveal to us. Okay, thirdly, um, you want to be... Oh, be prepared to help others understand their suffering. Be prepared to help others. Now, I want to caveat this uh, because this can really get us in trouble. Um, uh, sometimes we see someone suffering and we want to immediately fix it and we uh, want to immediately extricate them from the situation. And it may even be moved, motivated by something like love and care. Uh, but, but that's not necessarily the best approach. In being prepared to help others deal with their suffering, uh, here's what I would say. We want to avoid doing the Romans 8 bomb. The Romans 8 is that all things will work out good for you, for those who love God. We drop that like a grenade to somebody hurting. We walk right into the place, hey, it's going to work out for all good. It's going to work out all to the good for you. We want to be more sensitive as we come alongside a suffering saint to try to aid help. Um, we want to, sometimes silence is best. Uh, 
humility and tenderness is always needed. Um, Praying for wisdom as to know what to say and when to say it is absolutely critical. Even sometimes asking permission. May I just encourage you with the scriptures. Um, it, It is fraught with danger when someone's suffering to come and encourage them. I've seen a person go in and not say anything. The person's offended that they weren't helped in Scripture. I've seen another time you go in, you say something, and you really offend them because you haven't sat there in silence with them. You might guess who this person is that I'm referencing. Me. So sometimes you can... It's 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 kind of an imbalanced situation. And... Um, but I want you to know that, that Peter here is helping us interpret our suffering. And so the church is necessary to help each other interpret the suffering we're going through. Not too quickly, not with a certain degree of arrogance, or this is the way it all works out, but we are called to help each other see God in the midst of the suffering. You know, we are pilgrims, we're exiles. The church is an exile. And so, you know, we travel in pairs, we travel in a group for safety and comfort. And so we need to help each other in this way. And so I would even ask you that next time you're in suffering, that you would ask for grace to dispose yourself to those who may want to help you. Um, And those who are seeking to help, ask God for wisdom and grace and a sensitivity. Um, Okay, then then also uh, be prepared um, uh, to think much about heaven. You know, we are pilgrim. And Jonathan Edwards said, that one of the marks of a pilgrim is that he's not unhappy at the end of the journey. Uh, If we're thinking about that day, like Jesus, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and then sat down at the right hand of God, let's think much about that day. You know, let, let the glory of that day break into the glory of whatever you're excited about in the next two, three weeks. Um, And then I had one more. Let's see here. Oh, yeah. Yeah, be informed of those suffering around us. You, you, you know, be informed uh, about those suffering around us. You know, we all look very good in this room. Um, but I know many of us are hurting right now, whether it could be in a marital context, it could be with children, it could be health, it could be just your own head, your your love or perhaps self-hatred. Many of us are hurting right now and nobody else may know it. And, and there's nothing that would cause you to feel like you're part of a body when you're grieving and nobody is weeping with you. Now, so, so I would just try to be informed. How are we to be informed? Well, I don't know all the reasons for that. I don't know all the ways to do it other than maybe how are you doing and following up the question with, well, why is that good? Or why are you suffering? And, and maybe using the how you are as an introduction to more questions or, or perhaps seeing somebody. And, you know, sometimes you can see in their eyes, it kind of moistens up a little bit. You know that someone's, you're getting on some tender soil. And, and so, but, but asking, praying, asking for God to give you the wisdom. Who can I minister to today? When you come to church, who can I serve? Who can I seek to encourage in the faith? And, and ask God, give me the grace to receive the same encouragement and the same help. But let's be informed about one another. You know, I know many of the struggles that you all have, and, but, but everybody needs to know one or two other people, where are they at? And how can I pray for them? I have a list in my prayer book 
that just has those that are struggling or relationships or, or ailments or whatever. And I just, I just have this list of names that just about every day I'm going through praying for. Maybe you can develop that. Maybe you can put a slip of paper in your Bible and as you hear different things, you can put their names down and you can just pray for them. But it gives us empathy and sympathy and love for one another. So those are just some ideas that you can consider. I'm sure you can think of more. But, but what we have here is we can rejoice in our salvation, three to five, and we can rejoice in the midst of our suffering because of that salvation. So let's just take a minute now, just one minute, and, and let's ask God for grace to reveal to us the truth of these things. And then an elder is going to come up and uh, close us in prayer. Thank you.